0: Today.
1: The Bowery Boys episode 243, New York in Neon. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery
2: Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com/slash Bowery Boys.
1: Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. Tom Myers is off this week. However, I will have a Tom with me on this show. I will explain that in a second. This episode is really about a very subtle feature of New York City at night. It's about that moment when you're walking down a street at night and you have bright lights coming from car headlamps, those orangey glowing street lamps above you, and maybe some crazy LED light banners that are hanging over Bodega. And there, across the street, you see the elegant red glow of a neon sign, from a parking lot, or a late night bar. Neon is classic New York, existing in another era, and no amount of hyper gentrification can spoil it. In this show, I'll briefly take a look at some early classic signage in New York City, like what kinds of signs you might have seen back in old New York, all leading up to the introduction of neon signs in the 1920s. So we'll start with an overview of what advertising was like back before 1920, you'll be surprised to hear how insanely messy it all was. Then I'll talk with author Thomas Rinaldi, that's the aforementioned other Tom, Thomas Rinaldi, author of the blog New York Neon, to understand what it is about neon that is so essentially New York. And finally, because most neon is made by human hands in workshops around the city we will actually head out to one, out to Ridgewood, Queens, to visit one of New York's most famous neon signmakers, Artistic Neon. From glowing crucifixes in Hell's Kitchen to the sleaze of 70s Times Square, from the marquee of Radio City Music Hall to a thousand diners and liquor stores, this is the story of New York in Neon. Now we'll be starting the show with the simplest of signs, perhaps the most elegant and certainly the most mysterious of signs. Just look up at any large collection of buildings in New York City and you're bound to see a ghost. The faded words upon the plain sides of tall buildings, promoting the sale of discontinued candy bars or antiquated elixirs, rooms for rent in hotels that no longer exist or Ample brands of cigarettes and whiskeys. These are painted signs of the past, ghost signs, as they're sometimes called, and it seems a new one reappears daily as rapid changes to the city tear down buildings, revealing early 20th century advertisements that had been tucked away from view. They can give the impression that advertising on New York City streets was once subtle and aesthetically pleasing in washed-over colors and very polite sentiments. Well, let me dispel that myth by introducing to you a very chaos-inducing profession of the 19th century, the Bill Poster. Graying photographs of the day kind of disguise how bright and busy the streets would have been back then. There was no reason for restraint. In fact, there was every reason to carpet the city streets with your advertisements. And adding to the pandemonium was the fact that there was no city regulation in those days. Said the historian John Fanning Wilson in 1846, New York is distinguished for its display in the way of signs. Every device and expense is resorted to to make them attractive, crowding them upon every story and even upon the tops and ends of some houses. One small house on Beekman Street had 12 signs of lawyers. And at 155 Pearl Street, the name Tilden and Roberts was painted on the stone steps of the door. Two factors were responsible for this dizzying mess. The first was the improved printing techniques of the 1840s and 50s, allowing for the mass printing of placards and bills for the very first time in color. The second factor can essentially be boiled down to the biography of one particular individual, P.T. Barnum. In marketing his American Museum and then later his traveling circus, Barnum would plaster the town in large eye-catching posters, a deluge of imagery impossible to ignore The walls of every surface were engulfed with literal layers, sometimes dozens of layers of different signs. By the 1850s, everything from services to snake oils were being plastered onto fences, trees. I even read an anecdote that said that dead horses in the gutter would also be occasionally covered in signs. A tongue-in-cheek article from the August 26, 1853 edition of the New York Times mocks the profession of the people responsible for this blanket of bills. Quote, at dead of night and in solemn silence, he labors at his vocation. While all but printers and rogues are asleep, he, with paste pot, brush, and bills, goes forth to cement a tale of thrilling interest against a pile of bricks wraps firmly around the lamp posters pleasure excursions and barnum's bearded lady leaves unprecedented bargains against the most common looking boards and shrewdly displays lives insured against a crumbling wall Naturally the city attempted to regulate the bill poster industry eventually especially at the start of the 20th century during the city beautiful movement in 1904 the municipal art society even took the lead in attempting to ban poster advertising from stations well Arguably, on the other end of the eyesore spectrum here, were beautifully colored and flamboyant shop signs and billboards made by local sign makers and painters, often inspired by the flourishing world of print advertisements. Products began becoming associated with individual logos, which could convey meaning in a single glance far more than a line of words. The magic of gaslight was even incorporated into certain signage. It was expensive, of course, and messy, but you could produce a rather captivating and mysterious glow on a sign when encased with a jeweled lens, and some even came with a blinkering special effect. But a colossal change came to the world in the 1870s with outdoor electric lighting. During the Christmas season of 1880, massively large arc lights, or sun lamps as they were called then, illuminated the streets of Union Square and Madison Square, suspended high above the street. But these lights were hot, costly, and mostly unpleasant. Usable electric lighting arrived via Menlo Park and the laboratory, of course, of Thomas Edison. The incandescent light bulb changed life as we know it. It was a stronger, cheaper light source, allowing for the illumination of homes, streets, and conveyances. And of course, it would transform the business of advertising. In 1882, at an electrical exhibition in London, the very first word would be spelled out in light bulbs. Appropriately, that word would be Edison. Just ten years later, electric words would appear on a sign in public. The location was Madison Square, where just a dozen years before, the streets had been brightly exposed with that arc lighting. In July of 1892, on a triangular parcel of land, rising atop the Cumberland Hotel was the first advertising phrase to be entirely written in lights, flashing green, red, yellow, and white. The sign was paid for by the Long Island Railroad, and it read, Buy homes in Long Island, swept by ocean breezes, Manhattan Beach, Oriental Hotel, Manhattan Hotel, Gilmore's Band, Brock's Fireworks. You'll know what all of that means if you take a trip to our back catalog and listen to episode 102 on the history of Brighton Beach and Manhattan Beach. And by the way, that little triangular piece of land where the Cumberland Hotel sat, well, that would be demolished about a decade later. And of course, that is the spot where today stands the Flatiron Building. But with this swept by ocean breezes sign, a perfect marriage was formed. Broadway and electric lights. An ideal electrically lit sign would be seen from far away and from multiple angles. Most city streets of New York did not have the depth in which to truly appreciate signage of such elaborate size. The illuminated signs of the New York side streets would thus be restricted to modest dimensions. But on Broadway, especially at those places where Broadway crossed the grid plan diagonally, creating these massive plazas, like Madison Square, for instance, electric sign makers were not hampered by size. By the 1890s, another one of these plazas, Herald Square, was the center of the entertainment world. It was here on the streets of Herald Square that illuminated signing first really took root. By 1902, it earned Broadway the nickname the Great White Way, referring to the electrical spectacle of lights. But of course, the most intense concentration of electrical advertising would reside in Long Anchor Square. In 1904, when the square would be renamed for the New York Times, that newspaper would celebrate with a New Year's Eve party shooting off fireworks at midnight over the newly christened Times Square. Three years later, in 1907, the Times would celebrate this event with an electrically lit ball. Lighting innovators, such as the O.J. Good Company, would invent quote-unquote spectaculars, promoting Coca-Cola, Lucky Strikes, Aero Collars, inexpensive liquors, women's undergarments. Times Square understandably gets all the attention when you're talking about illuminated signs because here, I mean, they're more than signs. They're often like Broadway shows in themselves. It's here in Times Square that electrical signage in the United States becomes extraordinary. But for the rest of this show, however, I'm going to focus on the ordinary. In the spring of 1923, the Wall Street Journal reported on a survey by the New York Edison Company regarding the number of electric signs being used in New York City. Quote, Between the Battery and 135th Street, there are about 9,500 outdoor electric signs containing over one million lamps. Electricity was no longer a novel device by this point. According to the report, the largest number of electric signs in New York were being used by restaurants, followed in second place by tobacco shops, and then in third place, haberdasheries. Fourth place, doctors and dentist offices. Also placing high on the list, drugstores, garages, and car dealerships. Theaters once employing the largest number of electric signs in the city, actually placed 14th on this list of New York City businesses, and that's 1923. So basically, by the mid-1920s, electric signs were everywhere and were beginning to shape the identity and the spirit of New York City. The next evolution in lighting also begins in New Jersey. Did you realize New Jersey was so important to lighting history? In 1897, an engineer named Daniel McFarlane Moore invented a lamp that provided light via a gas discharge. Except in this case, the gas was carbon dioxide. It was first exhibited to reporters in his laboratory in Newark, New Jersey, and then finally displayed commercially for the first time in a Newark hardware store in 1904. The Moore tube lights, or the Moore lamps, did appear in New York City then at the start of the century, but they were ultimately deemed too costly, really, to largely catch on. But what if another sort of gas could be introduced into Moore's glass tubes, one that was more cost-efficient? That was the discovery of a French scientist named Georges Claude, who substituted the carbon dioxide with neon gas, an element which had only just been discovered in the year 1898. Claude debuted the first application of neon light on December 11, 1910, in a display at a Paris exposition. His invention would take America by storm. Less than 20 years after the debut of Claude's first neon display in Paris, neon lighting would become the dominant form of advertising lighting on the streets of New York. And not just, of course, those dazzling spectaculars of Times Square, which exploited all sorts of creative neon uses, but also on those side streets above those tobacco shops and those haberdasheries. Well, to help me tell the rest of the story, I'm headed to Midtown Manhattan to bring in the ultimate man of neon, Thomas Rinaldi, the author of the blog New York Neon, who also published a book by the same name on this very subject just a few years ago. When I come back, we'll try to answer the questions of why neon took off so quickly in New York and why you still see it to this day over dozens of small businesses around New York. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC.
2: In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free, right now on Wondery+.
0: today.
1: All right. I've arrived in Midtown Manhattan in a cozy little studio near Herald Square, and I'm sitting here with Thomas Rinaldi, the author of New York Neon blog and the New York Neon book, which came out just a few years ago, which is, I have to say, a really spectacular, incredibly colorful guide basically to most of the existing neon in New York and, of course, some stuff that's since been gone, since you've published this. Yeah, sadly,
3: a bunch of it's not around anymore.
1: What did you discover that was very surprising in your research? Because you had to go, as we'll discuss, this isn't just like talking to big companies that are doing Neon, but these are just individual private businesses, hundreds of them all over the city.
3: There really aren't uh, big Companies, It's not uh, a business of big companies anymore, really, uh, you know, especially New York. Uh, you know, it's a lot of kind of smaller businesses. Neon is full of complexities and contradictions and surprising things. And I mean, you know, Neon has been likened in its history to, you know, kind of like, you know, some big bad businessman with his hand in your pocket. But in fact, it's a handcraft. It's very artisanal to use that that A word that's <laughs> knocking around so much these days. You know, it, it's it is done the same. Same way it's been done for at this point uh, a good hundred years. It doesn't uh, ship very well because obviously its glass tubes are pretty fragile. So mm-hmm. I mean, most of the neon signs that you see, even small window signs, are made kind of locally. But let's start at the beginning
1: of New York's long association with neon which began in the 1920s right is when neon f- was first seen on the streets of New York but wouldn't you say that by the following decade it was really prevalent everywhere along
3: the streets new york is kind of associated with neon sort of hand in hand but in fact one of the you know, another one of these little contradictions and surprising parts of the history of neon is that it didn't really originate in New York, although it had certain prototypes that started to kind of appear in the 1890s, 1910s, but really neon signs as we know them now developed in Paris in the years just before World War One, and then really uh, neon signs as we think of them in the kind of present day sense really arrived in New York in the early 1920s. Uh, the, this French company was really kind of promoting them and developing them, and it, it became a big sort of boom business for them, uh, and so they started setting up shops here in New York. They opened a shop in 1924. And this particular French company, Claude Neon, tried to maintain a a sort of monopoly uh, by way of patent rights and things like that throughout the 1920s. And there were what was known as the Neon Wars of the 1920s of these different companies kind of fighting with each other. But it was not an easy thing to just set up in your garage at the time. It was sort of an advanced and sophisticated and still is sort of technology. You're you're
1: dealing with gases.
3: Gases and, you know, bending glass tubes, you know, which is a skill that not just everybody has. I mean, they're neon glass that have told me it took years for them to really, you know, become proficient mm-hmm. at doing it. So, uh, you know, really, it was only in the 1930s that it really kind of exploded. The Claude mm-hmm. Company's patents in the U.S. expired in the early 1930s, and then all of these sign companies dove into the business.
1: What's especially fascinating is this brand new way of lighting. is coming over here, late 20s, early 30s. And It's entering into a scene which is already, I think, what many could charitably describe as way over the top. Times Square is already – there are already these spectaculars that have been created that are featuring thousands of electric light bulbs. So so Neon basically enters a scene – a Neon's thriving been, scene of, yeah, of being incorpor- signs. It's being incorporated in, into something that's already growing to become this international art form, which is essentially like elaborate advertising.
3: Yes, it is sophisticated, you know, and, and these little crazy machines were developed to animate the signs and basically like cartoons, but, you know, repeated over and over and over. These kind of crazy little machines and you'd have animated people, you know, shooting pool and other kinds of things on a large scale, but also on a kind of a smaller scale. So this exploded and it wasn't really regulated. So these signs right. were kind of everywhere. Mm-hmm. And th- so there was a, a big resistance. So this kind of gets into the evolution of the anti-sign movement hmm. which also predates electric signs it goes back it's really starts in in uh, the UK in the mid kind of 19th century and then sort of quickly jumps across the atlantic and has a, an american equivalent outdoor advertising was seen to be developing into something that was kind of out of control even before electricity so imagine how the anti sign people viewed all these electric signs so there was a great deal of lobbying kind of in the city beautiful movement around mm-hmm. the turn of the last century to restrict outdoor electric signs. And so the city started doing that, which is why even now, if you go up or down Fifth Avenue, there's almost no uh, electric outdoor storefront signs because Fifth Avenue was was very early on, sometime around 1910 or 1915, in city zoning, declared kind of like a no-go zone for advertising signs. So you almost can think of electric signs today, but even
1: as far back as the 1930s, right, as being corralled into certain kinds of places, this over-the-top electric signing, essentially, yes. right?
3: Yeah, and well, now it really is corralled because it, the zone, the whole history of the zoning is a fascinating thing. Um, so now, you know, you went from a, a point where people were trying to the same civic organizations that, that at the turn of the century were trying to. Make illegal these outdoor advertising signs by the end of the 20th century are actually legislating to require them in Times Square. When, the, when Times Square was being cleaned up in the 80s and 90s, there was this big uh, concern that, oh, my God, we're going to lose all the signs. So the same civic organizations like Municipal Art Society here in New York that in the turn of the century, Hmm. in the early 1900s, were helping to outlaw electric signs on Fifth Avenue actually had it written into the zoning that you're required to have animated kinetic outdoor electric illuminated signs in in the Times Square vicinity.
1: Now, I'm going to focus a little bit more on the other side of neon here, because to me, it's... it's a little bit more romantic. While you had these big spectaculars going on in Times Square, along the side streets and in all the local neighborhoods, you had neon thriving in all of these other ways, but not big flashy ways. In these small, little, quiet ways, and you would have whole streets at night. We would walk down the street, and we just everything would be lit up in neon lights, but it wouldn't be to Go to the theater, or to you know, to advertise a film. It would be to advertise a tailor, or to you know, advertise cigars. And these became quite prevalent then, also by the thirties.
3: Right, and this also predates neon. So all kinds of business. So New York Edison, the predecessor to our beloved Con Edison of today, mm-hmm. New York Edison to to kind of help uh, stimulate business was really promoting electric signs. And you go down the list of businesses, and we think of we associate electric signs with certain kinds of businesses, like you know entertainment-related businesses, bars and restaurants. But it was everything. Uh, even churches had their own category. Yeah. So there were we think of the you know the kind of. Uh, uh you know pastiche neon cross but there were uh, incandescent crucifixes it's uh, inter-
1: yeah it's interesting to think of churches getting in on the same kind of act that a person selling a product
3: Well would. they were competing. Right. You know and some of these churches <laughs> saw themselves as as competing with the movie theaters in in those decades.
1: And so I think one great and interesting mystery to me is how neon uh, on the level of these common businesses up and down the streets, how so many of them did survive. I mean, maybe maybe my question is wrong. Maybe so many of them, maybe there were just so many neon signs that the ones that exist today are actually just a small handful of them. Like maybe it was just so prevalent. But to me, it just seems like there's a, still a lot of really old classic neon almost everywhere you turn.
3: There's really statistically, you're able to kind of get a statistical assessment uh, of this now because of these surveys that quantified how many electric signs were being put up and because the Buildings Department required permits to be filed. Mm-hmm. so And not every sign had a permit filed for it. There were a lot kind of put up on the sly. But- through these statistics, you can figure out how many were actually put up over a certain period of time. And then you can, you know, just from a uh, the survey that I've done of looking for these things where they're still around today, uh, how many from that period are still around? And it's like mm. a sign that was put up sometime, say, between 1920 and 1960. You can figure out, and I actually did figure this out at one point, had like a point zero 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 three two chance of surviving to today oh i mean it's it, the percentage of signs that were installed before 1960 electric signs storefront signs in new york that survived to today is incredibly minuscule it's not one percent it's not even half of a percent it's very very small. so what we're actually seeing is is the not the tiniest barely. tiniest little vestige and the survivors and the survivors and yeah. so i guess and not necessarily representative sampling Oh, that's that's a good point. We, this but, is why there's so many liquor store and parking garage. Neon okay, signs. so I was literally
1: it was my next question. If you see neon in, in a neighborhood, it is there's like an eighty percent chance it's, it's going to be a, a liquor, liquor store, store or, or a parking, parking garage. garage. So why exactly is there a reason behind that?
3: Uh, yeah, it's a little bit complicated, but it has to do with liquor stores with the way they are regulated. Uh, and a lot of the liquor stores that are around in New York now have uh, – this was an interesting thing I learned in the course of researching for the Neon book mm-hmm. – was is that these liquor stores are, are right where they have been since they opened up at the repeal of Prohibition. You know, they set up shop in 1933 or 34 at the end of Prohibition, and you'll notice sometimes in liquor stores established 1933 or established 1934, yeah. and they've changed hands obviously and maybe changed names, Uh, but it's so kind of cumbersome to get the licenses that you need to open up as a liquor store that a lot of these businesses have just stayed right where they are. So it's just the age of the businesses
1: themselves that, as a a wonderful side effect, much of their
3: signage remains with it. Yes. This is why we have kind of a disproportionate uh, number of liquor store, old liquor store signs that survive Now And they're great to look at. And parking garage is sort of similar. I think it's not quite so much that they're regulated. It doesn't have so much to do with legislation. But just as kind of they're there, they put up this sign because in the 20s and 30s and 40s, every business was putting up a sign like that. And a parking garage doesn't really need to, you know, is not so image image conscious as other kinds of uh, businesses as, as, ter- as far as a, a type, typology.
1: Well, you can't do anything else with a parking garage but be a parking garage. So it's always going to be doing that. So they just keep the signs along with it. But in terms of these smaller signs... Do you have a few favorites that we could send people out to go yeah, look of. It
3: depends on the day you ask me, but the answer usually is one of a couple of usual suspects. And so Nathan's uh, – the original Nathan's out on Coney Island has probably the best suvi- surviving example of the kinds of neon storefront signs that were once just garden variety and typical throughout the city. And it's just – it's big. It covers you know like half a city block almost. Uh, one of their signs is – is definitely one of the very earliest neon signs that survives in New York City. Uh, I could never figure out a date for when it went up, but Mm -hmm. probably around 1930, the big vertical sign that's over Surf Avenue. And then the the kind of what's in the business are known as fascia signs that are kind of flush with the storefront that actually wrap the corner of the business date uh, are much later, date to about 1960, but they're still great. Uh, And those, I was able to kind of figure out who made them. It was a guy called Nathan Salzman, you know, who has his, and, and his descendants got in touch with me. Uh, through the blog and they saw this blog post that Uh I did and and were able to kind of I had looked him up in census records and you know he has this kind of he came from Eastern Europe they're not sure you know just what at that time was you know, in the census records, put down as Russia, but it could have been Ukraine. Or, mm-hmm. and he actually emigrated to Argentina first, and uh, put up signs in Buenos Aires before coming to New York in like the teens or twenties. And his his name was Nathan Salzman. And the family legend is that the, they know that he had done the Nathan signs. And the fa- the legend in the family is that the Nathan's script logo is his signature. So wow. and, yeah. So
1: it has nothing to do with the hot dogs.
3: Well, but it, the the hot dog was was guy was also Nathan. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so but they the, that, that's the legend in the family. It's anyway, a
1: coincidence two Nathans working together yes, that's
3: right. to create a yes. classic. Yes, uh, What other kind The kinds? Dublin house is the other. Oh, the Dublin house is That is my know. favorite. I was yeah. going
1: to say that was my number one on my list. on that's West 79th best.
3: Street. And the thing is it actually went up in 1933 and has been there. Uh, since 1933, it flashes. It's this great big harp. It's figural. It's got it all.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a harp. It's, I, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a, a flashing neon harp. harp.
3: Yeah, <laughs> and, you know, so it went up in 33 right after Prohibition, advertising this bar, and you know, just it, it it's it's I remember as a kid, you know. So and thank God it's still there. It, it got a, I think a nice restoration a few years ago, mm-hmm. so it should be with us for a long time to come. What do you think
1: is New York's best? Known surviving neon sign at the moment. Would you say I would nominate perhaps the Pepsi Cola? Sign,
3: yeah, Pepsi sign, yeah, would be a big one, and I mean Mm -hmm. that one is is sort of a different category because it's it's uh it's not a storefront sign, Mm -hmm. you know, but it it was it was also not a Times Square kind of sign. It was a what in the sign business would be referred to as an on premise sign or on the premises of the business that it advertised. It was Mm -hmm. on the roof of a Pepsi Cola bottling plant. It's a great example, though, of the the kind of contradictory appeal of these things because you know at one point. The, these big roof signs, which are no longer allowed to be installed in New York because the zoning ordinance has outlawed them because people said these things are are you know visual blight on the urban landscape. Uh-huh. Uh, here's one that is now a protected New York City landmark. It recently became the only – the first and only so far electric sign that is right. protected for its own – in its own kind of right – as such, but it survived the factory that it had been built on the roof of. The, the Pepsi <laughs> right. plant is long gone, torn down, and this thing is now uh, basically in, the, in a park landscape in front of big condo high rises. Yeah, it defines the
1: Long Island City, Hunter's Point. Waterfront, in a way, but it is disembodied. Yes, that if you didn't know the history behind it, you'd be like, "Why is the city celebrating this piece of advertisement?" Well, it's
3: not the only one either in New York. Well, at one point, the Long—I did a blog post just on the the big roof signs of Long Island City, of which the Pepsi sign was one of quite a few. The Silver Cup, now Silver Cup Studios, was. Previously, Silver Cup Bakery is is probably the other big surviving example, uh, and there are little remnants of others in these big, you know, kind of uh, roof structures that you'll mm-hmm. see on uh, warehouses in Long Island City today. How does old neon survive? How do you
1: maintain a sign like that? Is it just uh, – does it require – that much upkeep do you need to replace the tubes or are they just built to last
3: they're built to last you know and that's one reason that they kind of started to disappear in the 50s and 60s is these business owners figured out i don't need they were very expensive so one of the the contradictions of in the history of neon is that now we associate them with these independent businesses when they first appeared in new york in the 20s they were being put on they were being installed by big corporations like car companies chain businesses chain shoe stores Independent businesses, little businesses, restaurants and things couldn't really afford them at first because they were so expensive. Uh, Then the big corporations dumped them and figured – they got smart in the 30s and 40s and 50s, figured out they could – big corporations could put in cheaper signs. Uh, And so they were left to the province of independent businesses, which – Kind of walked them through this history of, you know, this kind of sordid history where, you know, when you're on the road and you want to find a, a motel or a hotel to stay at, do you mm-hmm. stay at the Equality Inn or do you stay at the independent <laughs> Bates Motel, you know, <laughs> right, and right. think of that uh, sign, you know, yeah. as depicted in in that in the movie, Psycho. Then... Uh, that association kind of uh, brings them through this period of having a, bo- a kind of a bohemian mystique. And through the 60s, then they kind of get this artistic appeal uh, as the kind of Bates Motels of the world disappear. Uh, and the businesses that survive and keep their signs are businesses like block drugs, you know, your neighborhood mm-hmm. drugstore, your neighborhood restaurant, your favorite local businesses that are survivors. And, you know, they're like uh, they're kind of the underdog in this world of mm-hmm. uh, New York being taken over by the big chains. It's this fascinating history of the tables turning and, you know, these signs being kind of public enemy number one to now they're, you know, this thing that we really kind of have to protect. Well, treasure. Uh, yeah, Urban this, treasure, this neighborhood yeah.
1: treasure. There's a certain mystique. To a neon sign. And, you know, you mentioned, you know, the the rural America roadside attraction type neon is sort of like one mystique. Vegas... Neon has a kind of another image that is romanticized. But I feel like New York, and to a certain degree, Los Angeles has a sort of similar idea where neon is associated with the city at night, can be
3: associated with
1: crime, can be associated with detective novels. Well, there's all this nostalgia
3: now because neon was used so much in the depiction, the way cities were depicted. Uh, Cities and other landscapes were depicted in in the kind of mid-century decades, whether it be, you know, the Bates Motel sign in Psycho Mm -hmm. uh, or all of the signs that appear in noir movies – But there's also something else weird happening in the
1: 1970s with Neon in New York City in particular, and that's 42nd Street, which is another aspect. It's like everything we've discussed, but like sliding down one more
3: like notch a little bit into the pure seediness of it. Well, and as depicted, as seen in films, like almost any given Martin Scorsese film of the (laughs) 1970s, you know, the taxi driver, chief among them, you know, kind of disappearing, you know, into the distance in the rearview mirror of travis bickle's checker cab uh one of the great ironies is that the side streets of new york today are actually much darker than they would have been in the mid-century decades you know which we never think of this but you see these old photographs of like think of eighth street in greenwich village Mm -hmm. you know you see old photographs and it's lined with all of these projecting neon signs which now are outlawed by zoning but uh if you look down eighth street today at night the light comes from the streetlights, and that's yeah. just about it. But we're now
1: in an era of LED. And when you go to Times Square, for instance, it's all... Big digital flash. You you almost never see Neon except perhaps in like a few examples here or there
3: just as sort of a, well, yeah, a so novelty. Neon kind of was on the outs, you know. And even a, a lot of these businesses that, that kind of turned away from Neon were actually still using it. But we wouldn't even see it because it was covered in plexiglass. Mm-hmm. You know, but they still were using – all of your Dwayne Reeds in New York had still Neon storefront signs. But they were – even if they were covered in plexiglass. Well, what happened – in the last 10 years, is that LED technology developed to such a point that it could supplant neon even in those uses. So uh, whereas every sign shop in the city still maintained, a, a, you know, a stable of, of neon glass tube benders, those guys really have lost a huge amount of their work. Uh, really, wow. this happened about, you know, seven to eight years ago, where LED just kind of very quietly took over that kind of workhorse part of the sign business. But neon isn't, I mean, you know, it's it's in fact quite far from being. We're in a
1: revival
3: of it. Uh, would you? Wouldn't you there, say? There's a revival, but in, very much as a niche. You know, so it's no longer kind of the workhorse of the sign business. You know, neon shops tend to be dedicated neon shops now, whereas before, I mean, there were you know miles and miles of neon being installed in New York every year, even into very recent years. But you just wouldn't see it because it was hidden behind plastic. That's not happening anymore. But the, the neon hmm. that is being made is being made to cash in on its very distinct aesthetic. It's neonness. It's neonness. You know, which LED is trying to imitate. You, you see all these imitation, these fake neon signs all over the place. Yeah. So how about the two of us go visit? A neon sign making shop. What
1: would you? What would you? Think I think about that to. idea. We have to. After right? all this, After absolutely. All
3: <laughs> yeah. So um, you, I mean, you have to. And I've described this as this being this handcraft. You know, we have to. You have to see how it's made. So let's
1: get on the train. A few trains, some transfers yeah. <laughs> uh, to Ridgewood, Queens, and to a family business called Artistic Neon, which is featured in your book. And let's go take a tour. Let's go. OK, so we've just taken the L train to Ridgewood, Queens, and we're near we're on Cypress Avenue Cypress. to to check in on Robbie Ingui, who is the proprietor, the shop owner of one of New York's most famous and finest neon shops artistic neon so how let's describe this your workshop here because well first of all there's like an amazing dog that I, I assume is your assistant
4: yes Seamus is my uh, my shop worker here. <laughs> he, he cleans up all the food we drop on the floor
1: <laughs> so let's start really with the beginning so so your father started this business decades before and is that correct 1951
4: well, he my dad Gasper has been doing neon since '51. He learned in a trade school. They had a neon trade school at the time. He was one of two students, a Cuban guy who mm-hmm. escaped Fidel, um, and my father. And they were the only two students in the in the in the class. And they became pals for many, many, many years. My father worked at various jobs. After he left the school, he got an, a job as an apprentice at a beer sign shop where they used to make all the beer signs mm-hmm. in New Jersey. They had the account for like uh, Ballantine beer or Schaefer beer and they would make these signs by the you know hundreds. Mm-hmm. They had many glass blowers in a big shop. So this was a and large
1: shop is where he got his start then. It's one, yeah. of, one of these bigger places that seem to be like, I guess, maybe mass manufacturing more bigger the, brand things. Right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Because, you know, in, a, in our little shop here, we, you know, we
4: make everything one at a time or if somebody wants four of something. All right. But we're not making
1: 50 signs. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have to have a bigger shop. So he got to start doing that kind of thing, sort of basic assembly line type neon. Right.
4: He worked in various shops from the 50s till the 60s. My father did some sign painting, too. So I think it was in 71 he was working in a shop in the late 60s and he had this guy who owned like half a Ridgewood this guy mm-hmm. and he had like a neon business but he didn't bend neon so he used to come to that shop and bring repairs and stuff to my father mm-hmm. um, and he said you know Gasper he goes uh, you, he, the, the boss you're working for is a real son of a bitch and y- you really should think about opening your own shop and mm-hmm. my father was a little you know he was, had his job he was happy he wasn't thinking big he says, listen, I, I know this lady with a store. I'll put the good word in for you. Why don't you take all, you got all the equipment already. So this guy, Joe Schmied, um, he only recently passed. He was like 100. He was the impetus to get my father into this store. He paid my father's first three months rent, mm-hmm. which was, I think, $75 at the time.
1: <laughs> that sounds about right. Yeah, <laughs> um, and... Voila, in 71, my father opened Artistic Neon. So, what were the kind of pieces he was working on? Because 1971, that evokes a lot of different memories from neon. Uh, me and Tom, just when we talked earlier, we're like, by that point, a lot of these bigger, more mainstream uses of neon were kind of going away. And you had anything from coffee shops to peep shows by that point. Oh, everything, <laughs> all mm-hmm. of the above. Mm-hmm. He did all of that
4: stuff. He, as the 70s and 80s came about, um, he would, got to do a lot of the big discotheques. They would all want neon. And wow. So he got to do some of the famous discos of the day. So, um, yeah, do you have any, any specific Yeah, yeah I mean, like- he did Ice Palace 57. It was kind of like a Studio 54-ish type place. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, really, he's has, you have to be a jack of all trades. And really, you have to, like, on one day you wake up and you might do a church, and then the next day you're doing a discotheque. Um, yeah, <laughs> yes. The, the good thing about the neon, my neon business, any neon business, is it's really varied. So your father's got an established neon business here. Mm-hmm. And uh, when did you come into the, to the <laughs> business? So I was going to college to be...
4: I wanted to be a marine biologist so I went to Queensborough Community College for about a year and a half, 2 years, and then calculus came up. Uh, apparently oceanography involves a lot of calculus. So I was totally lost. I was like what is this? I wanted to swim with the fishes. I'm a hands-on <laughs> kind of guy. It made me run out of college so fast that well you're not alone there. disillusioned. And I just went from me registering for the next semester to just showing up at my dad's shop.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: Um I was like 21 or something. He looks at me and says, "Well, you were supposed to be registering today for college. What uh, you know, what happened?" Um, I was like, "Well, Dad," ba-da, 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 ba-da. <laughs> and he didn't say a word. He just grabbed a tuba glass, handed me a tuba glass, and said, "Let's oh, wow. go in the fires. Uh-huh. Let's go right in the fires." And my apprenticeship began. Began there. Um, and he never pushed me into it as a, as a young boy. Like, "Son, you're going to take over the family business. You're mm. going to learn to be a glass blow." He never did that. Um, however, I would work and put around as a young boy in the shop with them, hold this end or drill this hole. Or, so I was handy and it was interesting because mm-hmm. it was bending glass. It was talking to customers. I like people and going to install a sign, climbing a ladder, bending neon. So I kind of liked the diversity of it was an adventure. running a whole yeah. shop. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of like, my father was a patient, patient, wonderful teacher. My mother was really supportive at home. She did the bookkeeping and came into the shop sometimes, or sat in the car with us when we did a job. So I had good teachers. My mom mm-hmm. and my dad were fantastic. So it was a, it was a fun thing to do, a family thing. Yeah, and then after like five years. My mom convinced my dad, like, hey, Robbie can handle it. Um, let's, you should retire. So <laughs> Great. at 62, one day they just decided not to come home. So they <laughs> they went to their house upstate, made a phone call, and says, take over the rent. Take over the rent at the house.
1: You know, box our stuff up. Um you know, that's amazing. <laughs> we're not coming back. The business is yours. <laughs> well, I guess what is your, um, have you done anything in the neighborhood? Cause I mean, when I just walked over here, I just like, I mean, I, now my brain is so hyperwired to see neon when I mm-hmm. see it. And I mean, there is some incredible, again, the thing with neon was, I'm sure, you know, and hopefully people who are listening to this, will find out neon is just so much more interesting than a, a, any other light. It may not be as eye-catching, like there are other, other lighting forms maybe more sophisticated, but there's nothing more interesting than a really good neon sign. So you have done some in the neighborhood here. Sure, mm-hmm. sure. Um, I just restored a, um, like a 19,
4: the guy doesn't even know when it's from. I, I got to talk to the old man because he retired, sold it to a new guy, a liquor mm-hmm. store, Queens Wines and Liquors. And the old man would be like, ah, just fix it when it breaks, fix it when it breaks. And I was trying for years to get him to restore it. Mm -hmm. So the new owner took over. He says, listen, I could rip this down and get an awning and the neighborhood will kill me because Mm -hmm. they love this neon sign. Let's restore it. We redid all the electrics, mostly new neon, some old neon. Um, Then they've got the big bottle with the light bulbs in it. Mm -hmm. We changed all those bulbs. Um... And it looks beautiful and everybody's like all happy. He's like, he paid me with a smile on his face because the guy really appreciated it. You know, you need the right client to want to restore a neon Mm -hmm. sign. Most people go, get rid of that old sign. (laughs) You need the right person to take the building over and go, okay, so let's take this sign that's been here for 50 years and let's fresh it up. Mm -hmm. Whereas a lot of people don't necessarily have that Thinking. Absolutely.
1: So, so the funny thing is, is in in the background, but we actually have fluorescent lights in, in the sound in the background. But that is not what a neon s- sign sounds like. So why don't we kind of, if you wouldn't mind, taking us very briefly through the steps of what it takes to make. A neon sign. So you were you were just pointing to this really marvelous piece that it looks like it's about to be you're about to start working on it. So first it starts with
4: a layout. You make mm-hmm. an actual size layout on heavy paper, the actual size that you're gonna make the neon. And it's just a full size drawing. It could be twenty feet long, it could be two feet long. Um, And you draw the tubes of neon on the drawing. It's like literally like the blueprint that you're going to start with. It is the Mm -hmm. blueprint, Mm -hmm. and there's no molds or anything. So you take the the layout, and then the first thing you do after you draw it full size is you reverse the layout. So in this instance, this is the front layout. Mm -hmm. And then what you do is you reverse it. So when you bend Neon, you bend in reverse. You're working backwards. Everything's backwards. Yeah, so all the bends are behind the sign. And then when you pick the sign up, you're looking at the face of it, which would be flat on the table, which Mm -hmm. would have been flat on the table. So what you do is you start with four-foot sticks of glass, and you measure out where you want to start first. You obviously don't want to start tightly on one end. Mm -hmm. And what you do is you go make your marks on the glass where you're going to heat the glass between in the fires and you heat the tube in an open fire. Mm -hmm. So this is just natural gas mixed with air, not oxygen, just air. It's an air blower. It's not propane. Not propane. I mean, if you're in a remote location, you you use propane out of a tank. Mixes with...
1: And so this is where you essentially you'll you'll spend hours with this glass tube, slowly bending it. It will be kind of between these two yep. these two flames yep. here. Absolutely, these are the crossfires. This is what you make, uh, you know, angled in.
4: And you heat the glass in between these fires, rotating it to keep
3: it.
1: Okay, so yeah, so it's uh, you're moving it back and forth to to sort of soften it, right? Right. It's going mm-hmm.
4: to, eventually, it'll get soft.
1: And there's some flame flickering off the side of it, slightly turning color. Mm-hmm.
4: It's getting a little soft, but it's not quite it's not ready to bend yet.
1: Yeah, there's like a halo of fire. It's actually it's like pretty mesmerizing if you have something you haven't seen. So you've now turned the glass into a U shape. And then you'd run to the table,
4: and adjust it on the table. Like you know, this is going to be a T, right? So we're working. Back. And then it cools. You only have
1: a few seconds mm-hmm. to do that. Well, what's interesting about this one that you're showing me? It's a, it's a, it's cursive. So that must have taken forever in terms of curves. Well, the whole thing yeah, is curved, right? Uh, with
4: with with uh, a block letter, you know, there's only there's a bend at the top of the A, the bottom of the A, top of the R, bottom of the T, blah blah mm-hmm. blah. But with script lettering. Um, the whole letter has got to be, you mm-hmm. know, it's all bent, all heated. So you're heating the whole, but obviously you only do it in sections, right? So you come, right. come out of the fire, run to the table. You have a few seconds before the glass cools and then you got to let it cool. Then you got to make a mark, go back into the fire, do your next bend. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have a cork in one end. So when you heat the glass, it collapses. So what you, you do is you, you blow lightly to keep it round and tubular.
3: Did you use anything, Robbie, to to kind of, draw out that script lettering that the glass you're using as the model to bend the glass around
4: Mm -hmm. i mean no i just drew
3: it by hand i mean no you didn't have any kind of pattern book there's no that's not a computer font that's just your letters
4: no that's just my like nice catholic boy script handwriting um, oh, my God, I would never make it in this
1: business. I write like a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah,
3: I mean, even, that would be they, very hard to copy. Even cursive. Do they even teach cursive in school anymore? I, I, uh, no, I mean, they supposedly don't. Supposedly, it's a dying <laughs> art.
1: They, they don't. So, the, uh, so just in terms of t- length of time, and obviously you're almost done with this one, because to me, it, it looks like it would take such a long time. But, of course, you've been doing this forever. So if, um, so, this is it's the word restrooms, and it's in cursive. With all and it, because it's in cursive, there are so many bends, there's so many twists in it. How long did the this take you? All day. So, just, so this is like an all day affair because mm-hmm. each letter probably took about an hour. Yeah, right? and I, I don't really work fast. Um, mm-hmm. I kind of just like to be in my zone.
4: I, I, I take a little coffee break. I check my email. I answer the phone. I you know I pet my dog. But this is like an all one day job just mm-hmm. to make this restroom.
1: What is your, from years of seeing thousands and thousands of neon signs, what is your, what's your favorite neon sign no, that, of people, course, that people, you didn't work on? People <laughs> that ask me all the time. Uh-huh. Um, I don't think
3: I ever asked you that actually.
1: Um, my favorite
4: neon sign in all of the city. I don't know I do like that Irish bar up in the 70s
1: yes we yes with the harp yes Yes. we we both said the same thing it's I don't know why I love it so much what's the name of that place Dublin house the Dublin house yeah Yeah, that's a beautiful sign all right well Robbie thank you for showing me spending some time and letting me spend some time and Tom thank you for joining me on the show Yeah, thanks thanks. for having us all right thanks a lot I'm going back to the studio So that is kind of uncanny, right? That we all came to the same conclusion that our own personal favorite neon sign in New York City was the neon harp at the Dublin house on the Upper West Side. But there are a lot of beautiful classic neon signs out there in New York still to this day. So... We, last week, decided to ask you, the audience, what your favorite was. We set up a brand new toll-free number, courtesy of our new sponsor, Grasshopper, and we opened that up looking for some of your favorite New York neon signs. We got like a lot of great choices. The Coca-Cola sign in Times Square, that neon crucifix in Hell's Kitchen that says, Sin will find you out. And we got a recent example, Kathy from Manhattan chimed in, with the neon installation from the recent Chihuly exhibit at the New York Botanical Garden, and it was really incredible. And I kind of feel really ridiculous producing this entire show, and completely forgot one of my favorite places in New York City, with some of the finest neon in New York, that would be the neon sign on the Wonder Wheel. And here are a couple other really good choices.
3: Hi, this is Paul from Manhattan.
1: Uh, My favorite sign is the neon sign in the Lexington Candy Shop on Lexington Avenue, of all places, and 83rd Street. Why? Because it's a genuine throwback to the 1920s. Quick
0: food, egg creams, Coca-Cola, and coffee were quickly available for New Yorkers. Well, coffee is still our tea ceremony, and a steaming cup of coffee in a ceramic cup is still
1: on the sign. So since I love New York and its history, Lexington Candy
2: Shop for the win. And thank you. Hi, Bowery boys. This is Beth from Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm calling to say that my favorite uh, neon sign is the C.O. Bigelow drugstore sign uh, right near the Jefferson Market Library. Uh, And the best part is uh, sometimes instead of drugs, it says rugs. Drugs not drugs.
1: Now, for some other great examples of neon, please check out our blog, BoweryBoysHistory.com, where I'll have a couple dozen examples of some of New York's finest neon and even a couple pictures from my trip out to Ridgewood. My thanks today to Robert Ingui at Artistic Neon in Ridgewood, Queens, and of course Thomas Rinaldi for walking me through just a little bit of the history of neon in New York. You should go check out his book with lots of great photographs, that's New York Neon. I also wanted to give a special shout out to another neon manufacturer in the city, a place called Brooklyn Glass in Gowanus. I went out there on a visit to their workshop last month actually during New York Open House and was completely entranced by the whole process of making neon and all these other kinds of glass objects that they do there. So thank you for inspiring me, Brooklyn Glass. If you want to hear the entire interviews that I did with both Tom and Robbie join us on Patreon. Those interviews will be released exclusively for our patrons, who for as little as a dollar a month are helping us produce this show and making the show as great as possible and definitely keeping us up on that new weekly schedule of ours. For more information, simply go to patreon.com slash Boys. Tom Myers will be back next week. We'll be back in the studio together with another great topic. So, thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not.